Good morning. It is good to be here this morning with you on the Lord's Day. Um, we're glad that you've chose here to come here and worship this morning. If you're a visitor, stick around so we get to know you better after services. Uh, and evening service will be at 6 o'clock p.m. So come back and visit us again. Um, this morning I was going to go over John. We're going to go over John 4. Uh, and we're going to be talking about evangelism. I'm sure there's been a lot of lessons done on the Samaritan woman and evangelism. Uh, but before we get into the lesson, I want to give you... Uh, a brief history of myself, uh, who I am, where I'm from, uh, and what school I'm uh, participating in right now. Um, my name is Doug Ferguson. I'm from Evansville, Indiana, born and raised. Uh, my mom and dad uh, moved down here about 10 years ago. My dad worked for the railroad. He was transferred down here, so uh, I followed them down here. Started uh, attending Mount Juliet in 2007, became a member in 2011. Uh, my wife is born and raised in Mount Juliet. She's attended this congregation her whole life. Um, this past summer, July 13th, 2013, uh, we were married here in this congregation. And we had our honeymoon in Savannah, Georgia. We spent a week out there. After the honeymoon, we came back to Nashville. Uh, the following day, we stayed a night with my parents. The following day, we rented a U-Haul. And uh, we packed all of, our, all of our belongings up and we moved to uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, actually west of Knoxville and Carnes, uh, where we would be beginning school at Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies. Four days before school started, uh, people had donated bookshelves, uh, desks, uh, someone gave us a kitchen table, so we were moving all of our furniture in. And it was our first opportunity as husband and wife to really work together. And the last piece of furniture that we had to move in was a 72-inch couch. And I really found out that my wife was a great encourager. Because as I had this couch on my back, going up and down, teetering back and forth, she was like, you can do it. Watch your style. You got So, I mean, she's really great at that. Uh, but if anyone knows of a good chiropractor, please come and see me after service. But no, we got moved in. We got settled in. Then school started. And our initial plan was that I would go to the school and receive a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. Uh, but with your support and you guys helping us out uh, and able to go to school with everyone's prayers and support, uh, my wife is actually able to attend the program as well. And she's going to receive a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. So she can use this in uh, teaching in the future. She can work in the office if she works in the church with uh, wherever I'm at, uh, she can work in the office, she can teach classes for the children. Uh, it's just a great opportunity that we have now to uh, work in the Lord's service. And so we thank you so much and we appreciate all the letters that were sent, the phone calls, uh, the prayers that were given. Uh, we thank you so much for you guys supporting us uh, in our endeavors. So continue to be praying for us while we're at school. Give you a little update. Uh, what's taking place in school and some of the classes that I, I've attended and some of the teachers as well. Um, last semester, my wife got straight A's. I got all A's and <laughs> a B. Uh, I got a life of Moses. There's a little, uh, I'll fix it later. But uh, it's great. You know, it's not real competitive between the two of us. 
Uh, there's times I've asked her, I'm like, hey, honey, I know you're tired. Go to bed so I can stay up and study a little extra long or longer that night. But uh, it's really good because we can help each other. There's times that we've gone over Greek tests the night before. We spent three hours quizzing each other back and forth. Uh, and on those tests that we've done that, we've scored 100% each time. And so it's been really good to have a partner along with me who's uh, taken the courses as well. Uh, some of the teachers that we've had, James Meadows, he taught our Acts class. Um, we've also had education, missions. Um, we've gone through the life of Moses, the life of Christ. One of the classes that we had was on evangelism. Um, I know there's great ways to spark a congregation, get everyone really enthused and excited about uh, evangelism and sometimes people can do that in a door knocking campaign uh, we went to a local congregation it was it was part of our assignment uh, the our teacher Bill Bryant he worked with a local congregation it was a smaller church about 30 members and they had a door knocking campaign to kind of get the people excited a little bit but we had to write a paper as if we were writing to an eldership at a congregation on why we thought it was a good idea to door knock. And before we went door knocking with this, uh, with this congregation, uh, one of the ministers uh, stood up and he gave us some instructions, kind of like Mitch does here, and uh, how we should uh, interact with individuals, how we can reach people, how we can have discussions with them, how we can almost mirror them as we're talking to them and handing them information. And uh, we can really develop a, uh, uh, a bond with someone by the way we treat them and the way we stand and the way we approach them. I really focused on that. I really took in what my teacher said on how you can speak to people better. If they're not really looking you in the eye, then don't sit there and bug eye them and stare them and scare them a little bit, but you need to almost uh, mirror uh, what they're doing so they can feel comfortable, so you can reach them better. And I really paid a lot of attention to that. And then he gave some other instructions on safety, on uh, mainly how to avoid dogs, uh, if there's a dog attack or if there's a dog coming. I really didn't pay too much attention to that, but my wife did. She really got in tune when he was talking about those dog attacks. So when we went door knocking, we went from house to house and the, the houses were pretty spread apart. We were coming up to one house and uh, we were getting our information together and we we're looking at each other. And this nine to 10 foot Great Dane came charging around the corner and he is growling. He looked hungry. And we looked, the Fergusons looked like they were next on the menu. And so this guy's coming at us and he's charging. He must have been about this tall. He was just massive. And he comes charging at us. My initial reaction is run. My wife holds her ground and she says, they told us not to run. So she's standing there as I'm trying to drag her along. Uh, I must have pulled her just far enough because it was outside of the invisible fence and the dog stopped like right in front of us and he was just barking and snarling. Uh, the owner came out and he said, Samson, so you can imagine the size and he said, calm down. And he came out there and we were able to give him information and he said, oh, he's really a sweetheart. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure, you know. Uh, Door knocking campaigns can be great and, you know, it, it's a great way to reach people. But I had a lot of trouble 
in writing my paper. Evangelism doesn't need to be a once a year event. It needs to be a part of our daily lives. It needs to be a lifestyle. It is not that it's a good idea. Hey, it's, it's, it's great to go out and evangelize someone. It's a command from the Lord that we need to go and reach the lost. It's a command that we need to really take to heart and understand how we can reach people. I'm new at this, and I'm sure there's a lot of experience in this congregation on how you can reach people. And so I think a, a great way we can do that is by talking to each other, sharing experiences. But the reason why I chose John 4 is because I think there's some steps that we can take in our evangelism approach. There was a man one day who was walking down the beach and he saw a cave on the side uh, of the beach and he, so he went up to it and uh, he was looking inside and he was kind of exploring the inside of it and he saw these round clay balls, uh, looked like stones, looked like someone had uh, formed them together and then set them out in the sun almost to bake and they were sitting in a canvas bag and so it really intrigued him and so he walked up, looked at the bag, saw that there's about 80 to 100 of these clay stones or clay balls and uh, he picked them up and he was looking at them. He began to walk down the beach and it had a little strap on it. So he put the strap over his shoulder and he continued to look at them. And as he was walking along, you know, touching them and feeling them, he would throw some out into the ocean to see how far he could throw them. After doing this for a while, he reached down and there was a couple of them stuck together. And so he tore them apart and one crumbled in his hand. And he found that in the center of this clay ball was a precious stone. And in excitement, he realized, I know what kind of gem this is. This is a precious stone worth about $1,000. I wonder if it's in the rest of the remaining stones that I have left. He had about 20 left in his bag. So he's going through, and sure enough, each one had a precious stone. And then it struck him. I've, I've walked a long way, and I've thrown about 50 or 60 of those in the ocean. I've wasted a lot of those stones and lost a lot of uh, money in the process of throwing these out there. How many times do we throw stones out in the ocean, not realizing the value that's on the inside? If we knew exactly how valuable a human soul is on the inside, would we be throwing them away? Would we wait for a one time event each year to go out and find these stones? Turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. And I want to kind of set the stage for the rest of the conversations that we're going to see. Um, we're going to see a conversation later on with Nicodemus, but for the most part, we're going to pay attention to the conversation that took place with the uh, Samaritan woman. So John 2, verse 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. So when you take this home and you go home and study it on your own, you're going to see that Jesus knows exactly what is inside of man. He knows what's uh, on the heart of man. He knows their thoughts, their intentions. 
And now turn with me to John chapter 4, and this is where we begin our lesson. To build kind of a, a, a bigger picture for you, uh, he had just had a conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Uh, there was a dispute after that between Jesus' disciples and John the Baptist's disciples on who's baptizing more. Jesus didn't want to rile up the Pharisees, and so he departs from Judea to Galilee. And most of the time, uh, when a Jew would make a trip from uh, Judea to Galilee, he would uh, actually go around Samaria. He would take the long way around just because they didn't want to go through and have to deal with the Samaritans. So reading in verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the wells about the sixth hour of the day. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a precious stone there. There was something valuable there that he had to go and find. Friends, it is our obligation to go and seek the lost. The thing that we can learn from Jesus here is he didn't wait for them to come to him. He went to them. He didn't sit around and wonder, hey, God, just grant me the opportunity to share your gospel with someone. Grant me the opportunity that I can help save someone's soul today and then sit around and twiddle their thumbs. He went and found individuals. And it's not just hanging out with people. It's not just about having a good time. It's not just, hey, making friendships. You need to have a purpose in mind. The purpose being reaching these lost in their souls and giving them what they truly need and desire. Now, we can understand that Jesus in verse 6, he was tired, he was sitting by a well, um, he was human being. What will put more light on the rest of the story is in verse 6, you can consider this to be uh, the Roman time, which would have been about uh, 6 o'clock p.m. But if this is Jewish time, it would have been high noon. And in this region, it was so hot that the women would have went to the well in the morning or the evening. People did most of the work uh, when the sun wasn't at its highest and uh, it wasn't the hottest part of the day. So in verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If this is high noon, why is the woman at the well working? It is possible that this woman is an outcast. She is shunned by her people because of the way she's been living. She's tired of hearing all the rumors and all the grumblings and all the, uh, the talk about her behind her back. So she's probably there by herself to avoid other people. 
But Jesus had to pass through here to find her. And he asked her for a drink. Now, with the Samaritan culture and their customs, it was considered a great blessing, even to give it to your worst enemy, to give someone a cup of cold water. Now, we just read that the Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews. Well, how is it that the disciples went into the city to buy food? It was more along the lines of uh, they had no business dealings. Or they had business dealings and they traded with them, but they had no personal uh, relationships. They had no close friendships with them. So when Jesus asked this woman for a drink of water, it's almost as if to say, can I have a drink from your glass? But Jesus, knowing that it was a great blessing for that person to give someone else a cup of cold water, look at verse 10, what he says to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who it was who talks to you, he would have given you a greater blessing. The greatest of all blessings. This living water. This lady's probably focused on the, the physical and not much on the spiritual at this point. And so Jesus goes and seeks the lost with a purpose in mind. And then he develops a common interest, a common ground with this person. He was thirsty. He knew that human beings are naturally thirsty and so they need water. And so he shares something with her, but he's developing more of a, a closer relationship and a friendship with her in the process. This is what we need to do in our evangelism approach. Once we've seeked a person with a purpose, in our conversations, we develop a common ground, common needs that we have, common likes or dislikes, just showing kindness and compassion to someone in this world. Verse 11, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And this is where Jesus takes the conversation and he opens her up to more spiritual matters. He's already developed that common interest, that common ground with her. He's like, now I'm going to open you up spiritually. I'm going to eventually take the blinders off but I'm going to work with you. I'm going to see where you are and I'm going to work with you. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. She said to him, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come all the way here and draw water again. He's raising that desire in her. He's getting her to see this need that she has for this living water. She could have considered this water possibly uh, in the physical realm of, um, you know, not quite from a cistern or a well, but it's a flowing water from a spring or a stream. And Jesus is trying to get her to see this is spiritual water. You'll never be thirsty again. Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. We cannot be afraid 
when we make friends of, with people in this world and we've begun to bring them uh, to spiritual enlightenment to be afraid to convict someone of sin. If there's something wrong in their life, help them take the blinders off and see the light. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour, hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I'm not going to get into all the details between the Jews and the Samaritans and where they needed to worship. And it could be considered as well that this woman, after Jesus re reveals her sin to her that she's living in, that uh, she wants an abrupt change. Well, where is it that we should worship? I, I want to deal with this ancient old question of, is it Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship? Or is it Jerusalem where you Jews say we need to worship? I don't want the focus to really be on me. Can, can I change the subject a little bit? That could be considered, but also, one of the most dangerous questions today with spirituality, with religion, with worship, And it should be where we want to bring people if they are lost, if they are confused, and they don't know. But I tell you right now, if this question is not addressed, there could be a lot of pain and a lot of loss if we don't know where the true worship is. A question like, why are there so many churches? Why are there so many different kinds of religions? Which one's right? They all look the same from the outside. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. In verse 24, it says, God is spirit. The way you can tell false teachings from true teachings is by taking this word and putting it right up next to what someone is saying, what they're teaching, and see if they relate, see if they're saying the exact same thing. Because this is truth, and bringing your spirit to the truth because God is spirit is what God is seeking. The true worshipers. He's seeking true individuals to worship him in spirit and truth. And if you don't know how to address that question of why are there so many churches, then you take people through a Bible study and you tell them exactly what the word of God says and see if it matches up with the place that they worship. If you leave people not with a, a, a fully addressed answer to their questions, 
They'll never know. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 9, the woman perceived him as being a Jew. Verse 11, because of his kindness, uh, she could have perceived him as being a sir or a gentleman. In verse 19, she acknowledges him as a prophet, an inspired speaker. Jesus, she finally begins to question, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that is to come? Do you see the level of respect that is growing for him in this conversation with this woman? If you are reflecting the love of Christ in his teachings, then the more time you spend with individuals, the more respect for Jesus they'll have. It will begin to grow more and more. At this time, in verse 27, his disciples are returning and uh, they walk up to the woman in verse 27. At this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak to her? Speak with her. Uh, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I've ever done. This is not the Christ, is it? What is this woman turning into? Is she beginning to go and tell others about the one that is the Christ, the one that will save the world from sin? Has she begun to become a, an evangelist for him? And you see the disciples walk up and, and the Samaritans and the Jews, uh, it was considered wrong for a man to be speaking to a woman in public. But do you see the barriers that Jesus is tearing down at this point? It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. And the disciples struggle even more at this point. Uh, look at verse 32 through 34. But he said to him, I have food to eat that which you do not know about. The disciples therefore said to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. At this point, Jesus is saying, do you not notice the nourishment and the food that just took place with this woman? Are you not paying attention to the things that just happened? Are you so focused and blind still on the, the physical and not the spiritual? And then he goes through a harvest time and he's basically saying the time is now. There's no more time to wait. It's not going to be next year. It's now. It's today. It's ready. And you can rejoice together whether you reap or you sow. Look at verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I've ever done. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with him, with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one indeed is the savior of the world. Another approach that we can have in evangelism is we can use our testimony. If others don't know what Christ has done for you in your life, 
they won't see a need or desire for him. So our testimony is very powerful. It can help people. It can help people see how much we need Christ. And that's the true desire that Christ has been trying to portray to this woman and to the disciples this whole time. Quit focusing on the physical. Pay more attention to the spiritual. I'm the living water. I'm eternal life. I'm what you need. I'm the desire you are seeking. Turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Towards the end of the chapter. Verse 25 and 26 of James chapter 2. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? That's where Rahab was justified by her works, by receiving and sending out the messengers. And verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. When we evangelize people, we can't have partiality. He gave an example of Abraham offering up Isaac on the altar. Why didn't James just leave it at that? Why did he also have to include Rahab? If Abraham today walked into this assembly and everyone knew who he was, where would you want him to sit? He's popular. He has a lot of connections, he's rich, everyone knows him, he's a good man, he has a lot of faith. Where would you want him to sit? Sit here, next to me. I have a good spot for you. But what if there was a woman, whether she was from Samaria or uh, wherever she was from, what if there was a person who walked into the assembly who you had seen out at the bars a year ago? Who you had seen smoking cigarettes, who you had seen drinking, who you had seen cursing. And then they walk in one day with the same kind of faith as Abraham. Where would you want them to sit? It is important in evangelism on what kind of faith you have. This morning I entitled the lesson what would you do if the Savior came into your world? How would you handle it? Well, I think it depends on what kind of faith you have. If you go home and you read the text tonight in John, you can look at the conversation that took place with Nicodemus and you can look at the contrast between the two. Some have looked at Nicodemus as though uh, you know, he didn't know all of it. He wasn't very smart. You know, he's confused. I don't believe that's the case at all. Nicodemus, first of all, was a Jew. He was a man. He was a religious leader. He was a teacher of Israel. He was well known. He was respected. He was upper class and he was also intelligent. But what did he do with Jesus? 
We see him a few more times in the rest of the gospel, but then you have a woman from Samaria who's a Samaritan, a woman. She's an outcast, she's shunned, she's poor, and she's ignorant. But what does she do with Jesus? It depends on what kind of faith you have on what you'll do with Jesus today. And if Jesus is in your world, then when you go with a purpose and seeking the lost, they'll see that need and that desire for him, that they need him in their world as well. If you've come here this morning and you don't know what it means to be a child of God, don't leave this assembly before asking and answering this question for yourself. Am I a human being? Some say, yeah, I'm a human being. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam comes and lives a perfect life. If you want to be a human being, that also means you must be a child of God. He was the perfect human being. He showed you exactly what humanity was supposed to be like. So don't leave here without knowing if you're a human or not. If you're, a, if, if you're part of humanity and you know how to treat people and you know what it means to be a son of God, a child of his, in his kingdom. But if you're also here today and you've known what it means to be a human like Christ, and to serve like him and live his example and follow his teachings. But you've gotten off of that path. You've forgotten who your brother was. You've forgotten that you're a prince or a princess and that your brother is the king. You can always come down have your sins washed away if you don't know what it means to be a child of God. Or you can always come down, ask for forgiveness, build that relationship back with Jesus, have that desire and that need for him once again in your life. But listen, this isn't my invitation. This is God's invitation for you. Will you take it this morning? Will you take hold of eternal life? Whether persecution or trouble comes, I ask you before you leave here today, please know who you serve. Please know who your brother is and who your king is.